0: Father, in your providence and in your wisdom, you have kept us apart and continue to do so, at least in our case. Father, I pray for those churches throughout the world who are gathering, that you will keep them safe and that you will prevent their gathering from turning into uh, a threat to those who would be there. We. Look forward to the day that we ourselves will join them in gathering. We ask, Father, that that day would come soon. And as well, it would come in safety for all who would gather. Father, we also know that in this time, as we sit apart and as we question things and wonder about our future, you nevertheless are on your throne. There is a plan underway that you foreordained before the foundations of the world, and it is going exactly as you intended. And Father, we rest in that. We place our concerns in your hands. We rest in the confidence that what is to be is what you have ordained it to be. And that knowing you are good, knowing that you love us and that you have the best for us intended, Father, we can trust that these events are for the betterment of your plan, the betterment of your glory and of this world ultimately. And although we don't see that at at this point, Father, we trust in it because we trust in you, we trust in your goodness and in your character. And we know, Father, based on who you are, that we can trust in what will come. Lord, I ask that as we go into your study today and we talk about things that are in the future, things that are glorious, things we await, that you'll connect the dots for us, Father, between our today and our tomorrow, that there'll be a clear understanding in our hearts for why these things matter to us now and how we are to put them to work in the way we serve you. I pray we won't be just excited at the news and the knowledge of these things, Father, but we'll be burdened by the obligations that they bring to be a witness, to be a good counsel, to be an example, to be ready for your return, ever watchful, and uh, ever obedient. I pray these things, Father, for the days are serious, the times, as Paul said, the days are evil, the times are approaching in which we will be called into an accounting of what we have done with what you've given us. Father, we want to be ready for that moment, so let us learn today, let us be ready for tomorrow. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's continue in our study of Matthew 24 and of the Olivet Discourse. We've reached, I think, a a particularly fascinating and challenging passage today within the overall passage of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And as we get into it today, I wanna remind you of the outline that we're really working with here that that Jesus gave us at the outset of this chapter. It's based around those questions that the disciples asked him. First, Jesus' disciples asked him if he would explain the events that would surround the destruction of the temple because Jesus predicted it would happen. And Jesus went on to explain that there would be a day when the Roman army would come and it would level the city and level the temple. And as we learned last week, that's exactly how history played out. And then, secondly, the disciples asked Jesus, What would be signs to tell us that the end of this age is coming? And Jesus gave them signs. He told them to look for earthquakes and famines and plagues and world wars and that those things would become increasingly severe. And more frequent. And then, as we looked at the data a couple of weeks ago, we saw that that too has already begun to happen. So, the end of the age is apparently upon us. And then, thirdly, they asked Jesus, What would be signs to tell the world that your second coming, or that your coming into your kingdom, as they intended it, was about to happen? And the answer that Jesus gives to that question is by far the longest answer of all of them in this chapter. And last week we started that answer, only got a part of the way into it. So today we're gonna look at the next section of that. And what we studied last week in verses nine through 14 was six signs, six things that Jesus said would indicate that his second coming was right around the corner. Those signs included false prophets deceiving the world and lawlessness running rampant and love growing cold and others. And then when we studied that last week, I told you all of those signs, all six of the signs we've studied so far, are unique aspects of a period of history called tribulation, a seven-year period that ends this age. And it comes immediately prior to Jesus' second coming. We learned that the book of Daniel is the book in the Bible that tells us the, the most that we know about this period of seven years. And in the book of Daniel, we're learning that there will be those who live on the earth seeing marvelous, amazing, and terrifying things as God does this work, all of which serve as a sign to the world that Christ's return is imminent. But the signs that announce the end of the age, that was the earlier question we studied, well, those start centuries before the end of the time. And in fact, they've already begun for us today, and they have more time yet ahead to go. They announce that the age is coming to an end, so it's a kind of a slow build. Uh, a, a building gradually of signs that tell the world the end is coming. We're part of that. We witness that. But the signs that tell us that Jesus' second coming is about to happen, those signs come in a relatively brief period of time, just in those last seven years, and therefore only those who live on the earth during the tribulation will actually witness them. And I told you last week that the church will not witness the signs that announce the second coming of Jesus because we will accompany Jesus at his return. In fact, we don't need to witness signs about an event that we're actually participating in. So that's one of the ways we know that the church is not gonna be present for the signs that we're studying now in relationship to this question, the question about his second coming. But there's other clues in the text that confirm that for us. There's another one we've seen already. Uh, For example, earlier Jesus told us that there would be those who would come in his name declaring themselves to be Messiah. But you remember he said that would not be a sign of the end? In fact, he told us, pay no attention to those people. But then, last week in verse 11, Jesus said that one of the signs of his return would be false prophets deceiving many. So which is it? How can a false prophet not be a sign at one moment but then be a sign at another moment? Well, this is not a contradiction. In fact, what Jesus is saying is that false prophets are not assigned to the church, but they will be assigned to the world. That is, for as long as the church is on earth, false prophets will exist because the enemy is always seeking to stumble believers with false teachers. That's a given. That's a normal part of being on the earth with the church. The enemy is attacking the church at all times with false teaching. But once the church is no longer on earth, the enemy no longer has believers to target in that way, so he turns his attention to targeting the rest of the world with false prophets. And Jesus said those false prophets, when they come, will deceive many in the world. So with the church out of the way, the enemy is free to deceive the world. And that worldwide deception by false prophets will be a sign to the world that Jesus' return is imminent. So what was not a sign when the church was present will become a sign after the church is gone. Later in this chapter, we're gonna see specifically how and why the church is not present on the earth to witness the signs of Jesus' return. We'll get to that at a later time, but for now, we move ahead with the rest of the signs that Jesus gives us that announce his second coming. Again, signs that will happen during the time of tribulation for those who live on the earth in that time, and as you might expect, they get increasingly intense. We pick up in verse 15 today. Let me begin reading there. Jesus continuing, he says, "'Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, "'which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, "'standing in the holy place,' let the reader understand. "'Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. "'Whoever's on the housetop must not go down "'to get the things out that are in his house. "'Whoever's in the field must not turn back "'to get his cloak.'" But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now or ever will. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. All right, so let's dive into this passage. And as we do, remember, Jesus is answering the question I call question number four in this discourse, that is, what are the signs of your coming into the kingdom? And as we said, all of these signs occur during this seven-year period called tribulation. And we're gonna see further proof of that here, beginning in verse 15, because Jesus opens here by saying, there is one important and very specific sign that will tell you that I am about to return. It is the sign of the abomination of desolation, which he says was first written about in the book of Daniel. Now. We know from Daniel, from our prior look at this last week, that this moment takes place in the middle of that seven year period of tribulation. We know this because Daniel tells it to us specifically. Let me take you to one verse in Daniel. This is how Daniel speaks of this moment. It's a bit cryptic, but we'll get through it. Daniel nine twenty-seven. he writes, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate until even a complete destruction is decreed and poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, I told you it's cryptic, but our purpose today, we just need to understand this moment that Jesus is talking about. He says, one of the signs that tells you I'm about to return will be a desolation of the temple during the tribulation. This desolation of the temple will be an abomination. Abomination. Daniel tells us it happens in the middle of a week. And the word week in Hebrew is Shabbat. It simply is a reference to the seven-year tribulation. Think of it as a week of years or seven years. So the midpoint of seven years is three and a half years. So at three and a half years into that seven-year period, Daniel says there will be a man who will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Now, sacrifices and grain offerings, only happen in one place. They happen in a Jewish temple. So what Daniel is saying, indirectly, is that there will be a Jewish temple operating in the time of tribulation, and at the midpoint of that seven-year tribulation, some man will stop the sacrifice and grain offering that is going on in that temple, and he puts a stop to the temple's operation by causing an abomination, something that makes the temple desolate, and unusable to a Jew. Now, Daniel does not tell us here what the man's desecrating act will be, but the prophet says that abomination only remains for a short time, and that eventually, the man who desecrates the temple, he himself will be destroyed, Daniel said at the end of that verse, and as that man is destroyed, so will his abomination be put away. All right, so that's all you get out of Daniel 9, The key here is, going back to Matthew, the key is that Jesus says, when you see that event, when you see a man desecrate the temple such that it is no longer usable and it puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, when that happens at the middle of tribulation, that is a major sign to you that my return is soon to happen. And in fact, since we know those seven years of tribulation are the final seven years in this age, before Jesus' return. Well then, three and a half years from the end, we get the abomination. That tells you that when you see it, you got three and a half years before Jesus' return. And in verse 16, Jesus says this event will be a turning point for the events of tribulation. It will lead to a great upheaval, unlike anything that's ever been seen. In verse 16, he says it will be a trigger for those who know Jesus, who are believers in that day, to leave the city of Jerusalem immediately. In fact, he says their flight needs to be so quick that should they be on the top of their roof, they don't even have time to go back into the house and claim any possessions. If you're out in the field, don't think about going back to the house to get your coat even. You need to just head immediately and directly out of the town and into the mountains, he says. And to emphasize the dire nature of this moment, he says it's a bad thing if you're pregnant when this happens or if you're nursing Babies, You'll be handicapped, I guess, in a sense. In other words, a woman in the later stages of pregnancy are uh, burdened with the care of an infant and she's weighed down, in a sense. She's not as mobile as she might have been otherwise, which tells you that this escape is so urgent that even just carrying the added weight of a child could mean the difference between life and death. And he also adds, let's hope you don't have to escape in winter. Pray for that. Let's hope you're not having to escape on a Sabbath. Pray that it's not on a Sabbath because in the Jewish culture, on a Sabbath, transportation is typically shut down, facilities are not open. That can make a journey harder to make as well. And so Jesus says, this is how urgently you must change your ways when you see this event. By the way, that reference to the Sabbath is sort of an important clue for us because it tells us that the believers on this future day will be largely Jewish because only a Jew would have to pay attention to the Sabbath day. So Jesus is describing an escaping of Jewish believers out of the city of Jerusalem and doing it in such a way like they're running from a tsunami or from a landslide. Every second counts in this future moment. Now, why will this moment of desolation in the Jewish temple bring the need for such urgent movement, such panic among the believers in Jerusalem? Well, because what follows for mankind is a terrifying mix of God's judgment and intense persecution. Jesus says in verse 21 that the abomination will trigger a great tribulation such as never has been seen on earth before or after. The greatest wrath and destruction that God could possibly pour out on earth will be poured out in those final three and a half years. And on top of that, we also know from the book of Revelation that the enemy, will become especially enraged and active in his persecution of believers during that second half of tribulation. So you not only have the calamities God is bringing on the physical earth, but you also have the enemy seeking out believers with great rage, which is why that flight needed to be so fast. Obviously, life on earth is not gonna last very long under those circumstances. In fact, if you go to the book of Revelation, We're told that part of the judgments that God brings will result in things like the loss of all vegetation and fresh water on the face of the earth. How long could life exist on a planet without fresh water? Obviously not very long. And that's why he says in verse 24 and beyond that this will be a day of such great calamity that life itself would have been extinguished for all humanity had it not been for the fact that God was willing to set a time limit on these events. That is, we know that these events will only last another three and a half years because that's the limit of the seven years of tribulation. Once you hit the midpoint, you're halfway done. And Jesus is saying that limit was established by God because if there had not been that limit, the combination of his judgments and the enemy's activity would have literally resulted in the wiping out of all humanity. God's judgments against the ungodly would have left none alive And the enemy's persecution against the godly would have done the same. And so God in mercy set a limit of three and a half years for this terrible period of history. And then in verse 24, the Lord says, you will also see false Christs and false prophets rising up, probably because the people will be in such desperate need for hope they'll be looking for a savior. They'll be reeling from disaster and persecution. And suddenly, anyone who says they have a solution will be of interest to them. And therefore, Satan will empower false prophets and give them supernatural power during this time, misleading people who are desperate for a solution. And Jesus says, the enemy will have such great hope in this deception, he will look to even mislead the elect, those who have come to true faith in Jesus. And so Jesus warns the believers of that future day not to be deceived. And he says, in effect, don't believe the reports of the false prophets, yet again, who speak as if I'm there. You do not want to be caught up in the deceptions of the enemy. They're going to tell you things like, well, Jesus has come back. He's in the wilderness. Oh, he's in these inner rooms, which is a reference to the temple, the holy place, or the holy of holies. He's in the temple right now. He's come back. Jesus says, don't believe those reports. There'll be lies and the believer can avoid being deceived in that way if you're willing to listen to the word of the Lord spoken here. So the calamities of tribulation and particularly the midpoint where you have the abomination that Daniel spoke about, those signs will tell you that Jesus is about to return. But don't rely on the false prophets to tell you when or where. God is not gonna use them to tell you the details. You know, I love this passage in the middle of the Olivet Discourse for one way particularly. It really reinforces the power of the word of God and the power of God to work through his word to do his will. And you can see the power of that on display right here. Think about the moment we're studying. Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago, more or less, to a handful of men sitting on a remote hillside in ancient Israel. He warned them at that time about events that were gonna happen in the distant future, telling them don't be deceived when these things happen. Now, those events did not come to pass in the lifetime of those men. In fact, they haven't even come to pass yet for us. And moreover, I suggest to you that it's unlikely the men that were sitting there with Jesus on that hillside, on the Mount of Olives, that they even understood what Jesus was talking about. I mean, much less have any perspective on it given where they were in history. And, as far as we know, no one who was sitting there was taking notes. So Jesus issues warnings 2,000 years ago to a bunch of guys who weren't going to be there to see it and probably weren't thinking, at least at the time, that they ought to be writing it down, and yet he was confident that his followers, thousands of years later, would not only know that he said these things, they'd be able to obey them. He speaks directly through history to them and says, don't be deceived. He's so confident, in fact, in the staying power of the word of God, in its ability to be preserved and shared, that he even refers back to a book of Daniel which was written 600 years earlier than his time. He was confident that book would still be available to people in the day that it mattered. So if you question the accuracy of the word of God, or maybe you've run into these kind of people, someone maybe you know, who has told you they can't believe in what the Bible says because how do we know it's still the real thing? How do we know it hasn't been changed? How do we know that this thing is not just somebody else's writing? It's It's been edited thousands of times. It's been corrupted over history. If you've heard somebody say that, then bring them Jesus's own perspective on the power of God's word to preserve itself over history. Because clearly, when you look at this passage, Jesus believed that what he said to those men on that hillside 2,000 years ago was gonna be remembered, it was gonna be recorded, it was gonna be preserved, and he ordered that it be shared. And he expected that prior works of Scripture, like Daniel, would also be preserved and shared over thousands of years. And he said, when the day comes that the things I tell you come to pass, you need to know how how to respond. Here are my instructions. And as that future generation, whenever it comes along, enters into these events of tribulation, they will have this same word available to them. I can assure you of that because Jesus says they will. And they will have opportunity to turn to the word of God for counsel. And they will find these instructions waiting for them in Matthew 24. Notice in verse 15, Jesus added that, quick parenthetical comment saying, let the reader understand. But in in the way that's coming out of Greek, you could translate it more as an an imperative. It could be translated, reader, understand. As if Jesus were commanding his followers, do your homework. Know what this says. Go back and study Daniel. Don't be ignorant of my instructions. I mean, here's a man sitting on a hillside 2,000 years ago telling you and those of us who are yet to come in the future, do your homework. And then later in verse 25, Jesus tells those same future disciples, I love this line, behold, I've told you in advance. (laughs) Yeah, 2,000 years in advance. In other words, he's saying, don't say I didn't tell you and don't say you didn't have it available. And to you today or anyone who might say this is nonsense, don't say that it's not true. Don't say Jesus didn't preserve it. Don't say it's been adulterated. The very God we say is God told us in advance not only of what would happen, but that it would be available to be known when the time came. And friends, this isn't just something that's true about distant prophecies in the Bible. Do you know this is true about everything in the Bible? That is to say, everything that is written here was written with an eye toward when it would be needed by those who would come along at some point in history. You know, as a, as a pastor, Uh, I get the privilege of ministering to believers who come with, with the kinds of troubles and problems that are common to life for all of us. They'll come and they'll ask me about how to face difficult challenges in their lives. And I'll tell you that what I find when I talk to people under those circumstances is usually the problems we face in our lives are the result of sinful choices. Either the choices we've made or choices others have made and we've been caught up in their mistakes. And as a result of that sin, we're facing painful lessons in life. And this is something we all know from time to time. No one's immune from this, not me, not anyone. We all get caught up in a a life of sin, whether ours or other people's, and the mistakes come, and then we have to face the reality of them and face the consequences of them. And when we face those moments, we typically reach out for help, at least those in the church will often do so, and they'll come to a pastor like me, and they'll say, Pastor, can you explain to me what I should do now? And that's the moment when I get to offer some kind of counsel from the scripture and that's a a valuable moment of ministry and, and we want those moments, that's why we're here. But when I get to that moment, so often I'll take someone to scripture and I'll show them what the Lord had to say about their situation. And so often the answer that we find in the Bible is in the form of a warning or an exhortation or an instruction that somebody ignored in the beginning. The Bible is saying, don't say I didn't warn you. That's what the Bible largely is, and unfortunately, we often ignore the warnings until it's too late, and I think that's one of the keys to understanding and obeying the word of God. That is, you need to understand this is not a book of solutions. This is not the book you turn to after the problem has come and you're looking for the way out. That's not how the Bible is to be used. It's not a book for those who get into trouble. It's a book, uh, a manual for living that's designed to keep you out of trouble, And the idea is you're supposed to study it and learn it and obey it so that it goes well with you from that point forward. The law says this to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 440. The Lord says, you shall keep my statutes and my commandments which I'm giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you that you may live long in the land which the Lord God is giving you for all time. So the idea is simply this. We're gonna make mistakes, and when we learn from them, we'll hopefully do better the next time, and that's a common experience for all of us. But it doesn't have to be that way. We can learn in advance what Jesus has already told us to stay away from, or to do more of, or whatever, and if we're listening and obeying, we can stay out of a lot of trouble, not all of it, but we can certainly find our way around most of it. And if someone is to obey the word of God in that way, including heeding the signs of, of the future events that Jesus is talking about here and so on, you have to be a student of Scripture. And more than just a student of Scripture, you have to be a student of all Scripture. In this case, for example, if you were to understand what Jesus was saying about the signs of his return, you'd have to have studied the book of Daniel, which is why he says, understand this, reader, And in the book of Daniel, you'd understand about the abomination of desolation and the timeline and so on. And then when you come to Jesus' words in Matthew 24, it all clicks. You'd have an understanding that now you can put into action and do what Jesus asked you to do if you were those who were living in that time. And Jesus says, reader, do your homework, pay attention. It's for your own sake. And that's not just true, again, about prophecy. You know, when you look at the New Testament epistles, where Paul and Peter says, you know, don't do this, do that. That's intended to keep your walk out of trouble. It's also true for the prophecies of Old Testament prophets who would tell you that even though you won't live through these events, you need to know them as a student of Scripture for other reasons. And may I suggest to you that even though you and I may not live through some of the events that we're studying now or others that are written in the Bible, do you realize you're part of the chain of custody that moves this information forward in history? Why do we know it now? Because good men and women of God wrote it down and carried that writing forward and learned it and taught it to someone else and they wrote it down and so on. The Lord sovereignly ensuring that that process went without interruption. But yet, through the hands of obedient servants who moved the word outward. So even if you look at this and say, well, this isn't about me, why do I need to know it? True enough. But do you care enough about the next generation of believers that you would preserve the knowledge and ensure that it's shared with those who do need to know it somewhere down the road? Or are you just trusting that Zondervan will do that for you? You know, there is a purpose in the body knowing the word of God so that we can share it with those who will ultimately benefit from it. We learn the study of prophecy, remember, for reasons beyond merely the knowledge of it. I've been giving you reasons throughout this uh, passage for why you study prophecy up till now we've come to three reasons. We've learned first that it helps knit the body of uh, of Christ together in a unified understanding about our common future and in that way we become closer as a body. Secondly, it brings us hope and comfort in the midst of a chaotic world of evil. It focuses our attention on eternal things so that we don't get weighed down by the sin and the depravity of our world. Thirdly, It prepares us for coming difficulties so that we will respond to those things in the right way, either by escaping them when we can or by facing them with our witness intact, if necessary. And now we have a fourth reason. If you didn't notice, we study prophecy because it's part of the Bible and we are called to understand everything in the Bible. And if you're gonna fully understand and obey what's in the Bible, you have to open up and read all of what's in the Bible. And self-evidently, Jesus expected his disciples to read and understand and pass along what he told them in this chapter as part of that mission. And we should do no less. You know, if you skip large sections of God's word in your personal study, because someone told you, ah, you don't need to know prophecy, it's a distraction. You're wrong. In fact, you're proving yourselves to be poor students of scripture and as a poor student of scripture, you are automatically a poor disciple of Jesus. That is, you're incapable of obeying as well as you could. You can't obey what you don't understand and you can't teach others what you yourself have not studied. And that's what discipleship is all about, by the way. It's about reading and heeding. It's about knowing and going which is what Jesus said at the end of this book when he said in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And then he goes on. Look, we have been directly called by Jesus to teach future disciples to observe everything that he told his first disciples that we have written down. And that includes things like commanding people to know what to look for when the days are short and how to be prepared when the times come. And when we devote ourselves to understanding prophecy, our obedience brings its own reward. Beyond just what you learn in the future events of this world, there is actually a specific blessing promised in scripture to those who read and heed prophecy. There's a specific one, as you may know, in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 3, we're told that those who read that book are blessed. But there's also a general blessing in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, for any who would engage in bringing the word of God to others, especially the good news of Jesus' coming. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now yes, that's a reference to the gospel, bringing the news that Jesus came and saved us by his death, that's true. But it doesn't stop there. You notice how that passage ends? Those who would say your God reigns, it's an illusion, an indication of Jesus' second coming to reign from Mount Zion. So it is not merely the church's purpose in pronouncing to the world of what has happened, we're also here to announce what will happen. So let's do that. Let's understand both the past and the future as God has provided it so that we can teach the world all of what Jesus commanded us to share. And in that mindset, let's just press on and finish this answer to the fourth question. It goes now from verse 29. He says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened The moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That ends Jesus' answer to the fourth question on what are signs of his second coming or of his coming into the kingdom. Remember, we're still looking at signs that take place entirely within the seven-year tribulation. And if you think about how he's progressed in this answer, he started with signs that will happen near the earlier part of the seven years, the lawlessness, love growing cold, and so on. And then earlier today, we saw him move to the midpoint of the seven years with the abomination of desolation and the persecution that follows. And now he completes this answer by looking at the very end of the seven years. You notice he begins by saying, immediately after the tribulation of those days, a reference to the seven-year tribulation. And he says, at that point, his return is only hours away, we're at the very end, and then will come some undeniable, unescapable signs that the Lord's return is happening. In verse 29, he says, the sun will stop shining. And of course, as a result, the moon will no longer have any light either, for the moon is simply reflecting the light of the sun. Beyond our solar system, he says, the stars in the universe will fall, which is a way of saying they'll no longer be visible either. The uncountable number of suns in universe, of galaxies that are around us, all of them go dark. Now, obviously we know the sun provides us with daylight, but at night, you know, we keep our world lit, technologically speaking, And so your house has got light regardless of what time of day it is. Uh, Our streets, our businesses are illuminated night and day. So I think in our world today, we tend to take light for granted. But we know that after seven years of unmitigated disaster during tribulation, the world will no longer be industrialized. There will no longer be an electrical grid. There will no longer be infrastructure. Uh, the book of Revelation and elsewhere tells us that people in the last days of this period of history will be living in caves. They'll be under rocks. It is the most rudimentary of living you've ever, the world has ever known. So the only light the world will have at the end of tribulation will be natural light, the light produced by the sun in the day and the moon and the stars at night, So there comes this moment right before Christ's second coming when all light is extinguished, all natural light, all of it. There is not a single source of light in the universe at the point of Jesus's second coming. The world will be plunged into utter and complete darkness. Now that's a darkness that few of us have probably ever experienced unless you've gone maybe underground into a cave or in some sense, maybe you have a room in your house that you've sealed up for old-style photography or something, a dark room where you could literally make the room fully dark. If you've never been in a place like that and experienced complete and total darkness, it is a different kind of experience. Uh, And then I want you to imagine, though, having that same kind of experience standing outside. There's never been a place on earth at any time, day or night, when you've been outside in complete and utter total darkness because it doesn't exist. But it will in that day the kind of darkness where you can put your hand in front of your face and not see it. And out of that utter intense darkness, there will come a bright sign in the sky. The Lord has effectively turned off all the lights in the universe so that only his light will be visible. Nothing will compete with it. And the world, therefore, will witness the return of Jesus followed by the church and the angels, as we've studied already, coming out of pure darkness and coming with pure light. Now you know why he's been so adamant from the very beginning about not listening to false prophets who would try to tell you that Jesus has already come back because he knew that the way he is planning to come back is such that you can't miss it. No one will need to tell anyone else when Jesus' second coming happens because you'll either be with him as a part of the event or should you be on earth, you will be those who will see him appear out of utter darkness with no question of what's going on. But notice Jesus says when he does arrive in this way, the tribes of the earth will mourn at the sight of him coming in power and in glory. And he uses that odd term, tribes of the earth. You know, he could have just said the people of the earth. He could have just said humanity. He says tribes of the earth. And the reason he does that is to make a contrast with another group, another set of tribes, specifically the tribes of Israel. So the tribes of Israel who were on the earth during this time will not be mourning Jesus' return because they will be celebrating their Messiah's coming to them because they will have just called out for him at an earlier moment. We learned about this moment in the study we did on Revelation, we've talked about it Earlier in this book, when we looked at the unforgivable sin that led to Jesus denying Israel the kingdom at his first coming. If you haven't been here for either of those studies, if you didn't do Revelation with us or you don't remember the earlier parts of Matthew, then I encourage you to go back and do your homework, as we said earlier. But it will be that the Jews who are enduring the tribulation and make it to the end of that seven year period and call out for Jesus as a result of their trial that group of Jews will prompt Christ's second coming and he will come for them and for the other believers who are on earth and that's why the tribes of Israel will not be mourning. But the tribes of the earth, which is a way of referencing the unbelieving Gentiles on the earth, yes, they will not be celebrating because the Lord's about to return to their judgment. We're gonna study more about the judgment moment that follows his return later in this discourse. It's actually discussed in chapter 25. But for now... We just wanna note that Christ's return brings different things to different groups of people. To the Jew, the Lord is gonna bring faith and redemption and along with it, the kingdom. And as well, to the believing Gentiles, he brings the promised kingdom as well. But to the unbelieving Gentiles on earth, the Lord is bringing judgment. And then we have a final sign, one final sign on earth that indicates the Lord has now returned. He says, there will be a great gathering accomplished by angels. The Lord will send his angels out to the earth and gather the elect, which is a way of referencing all Jews, wherever they may be in that day, who have come to faith, and are assembled now as a result of this gathering in Jerusalem, along with any believing Gentiles that are also on the face of the earth. And this gathering is necessary because of an Old Testament promise that God gave to the nation of Israel. He promised them, that at their Messiah's coming and the kingdom's arrival, they would all be assembled in the promised land for the beginning of the kingdom. And the Old Testament prophets also promised that at the moment of this great regathering at the outset of the kingdom, there would be a great trumpet blown, and that's what Jesus referred to here. This prophecy comes out of Isaiah, for example, Isaiah 27. It's not the only prophet who mentions this, but in Isaiah 27:12, we hear this. Speaking of this future day when the kingdom comes, Isaiah says, in that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. Imagine, angels, one by one, gathering the believers wherever they are. However that's gonna be done, it'll be an amazing thing to see. And then in verse 13, Isaiah goes on, it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing, in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. So notice Isaiah says the Lord will be engaged in a time of great threshing right before this moment and that's a metaphor for tribulation. Threshing is the act of of treading down on, on stalks of grain in order to release the seeds, the fruit. Well, similarly, God is treading down on Israel and the world with his judgments for the fruit of producing a faithful Israel at the end of it. And he says, as this threshing is going on, then he says, all Israel, wherever they're scattered, will be gathered up and brought back to Jerusalem so they can worship the Lord at the holy mountain of Jerusalem. And in conjunction with all of that, there'll be a great trumpet blown to announce this moment. So let's put all of this together as we summarize. the answer of what will be signs of Jesus' coming. The details are, first, the onset of tribulation. The overarching sign is tribulation. When tribulation is happening, you know you're close. And specifically within that time, there's going to be persecution of believers, which would lead some to stumble and hate each other. There'll be lawlessness, there'll be some false prophets, there'll be lack of love, and yet at the same time, a worldwide evangelistic effort, Jesus told us, Then, at the middle of those seven years, he said, another sign to you will be the desecration of the Jewish temple by a man who will do some kind of abomination there, leading to intense supernatural judgments from God and persecution of believers, which then prompts believers to flee rapidly into the mountains and from the upheaval. Meanwhile, false prophets sent by Satan will deceive the whole world into following after the wrong kinds of Christ, and then at the very end, the heavens will fall away, There'll be uh, lights gone, the world witnessing nothing but utter darkness from out of which Jesus will appear in a bright light and then the elect, the believers on earth, will be assembled by angels and readied for the kingdom, announced by a great trumpet. And the unsaved on earth, well, they will mourn as their fate becomes clear, witnessing the Lord return in glory. All of those things are signs to the world that the second coming of Christ is here. And if you think about what I just described, really the whole set of it, there's not much subtlety here, is there? I mean, we call them signs, but it's almost comical in a way to refer to these events as signs, as if we need a hint that Jesus is coming. I mean, it's, it would be like telling a woman in labor that, hey, that's a sign you're pregnant. Yeah, no, no kidding. And that's gonna be the sense of what it's like in these seven years. Uh, the world will need this kind of obvious two by four over the head kind of a sign, because in their unbelief, they will be resistant to the truth. They will deny it. Even in the face of the obvious nature of it, they will be resistant to the truth. That's why these signs take such a strong, obvious form, whereas the signs of the end of the age, now they're, they're quite subtle, relatively speaking. There are earthquakes and famines, things that people can explain away if they choose to. But see, the difference there is those signs are for the believer, To know that the end is near and to be ready for our Lord's return. And because we've been counseled by the Word of God and because our hearts are open to it, we're receiving it. But during the time of tribulation, it'll be a hard hearted, loveless world, and the signs for them will be clear and obvious. And even still, many or most will ignore them to their own judgment. And for now, the Lord is content to allow that ignorance and to allow that defiance. And as we get closer to the end, he will do more and more to break through it. And as that day dawns, as the day draws closer to tribulation and to these intense signs, it will eventually culminate with the Lord's return. And if there was ever a sign to know that the end has come, it will be the sight of Jesus appearing out of darkness to an unbelieving world. And in that moment, as Paul predicted, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It will not be possible to ignore the signs of Jesus' second coming forever. You can ignore them for a while. Even the most hard-hearted might be able to ignore them for the full seven years of tribulation. But at the very end, at Jesus' second coming, no one can ignore that moment. You will either be with Jesus at his coming or you will be mourning his arrival as you witness it from earth. And the key is where you put your faith. If you place your faith in Christ now, And during this window of opportunity that's been given to us, well then, you can be a part of that return. That's the promise of Scripture. And on the other hand, if you reject the truth of what's being shared now, you will one day see Jesus face to face, as we all will, but in that day, the Bible says you will be mourning. And so I urge you, don't remain defiant in the face of the Bible's testimony. Don't ignore the signs that we've already seen that are coming and continue to grow join in the family of God by believing in the testimony you've received, by placing faith in Jesus Christ, by trusting in his finished work on the cross to pay the price for the sin that we all have. With that, I have completed now the study of Jesus' answers to the questions he was given, and yet, if you notice, we're sitting here in Matthew 24 with the chapter yet still more to go, and then certainly all of Matthew 25, which is also part of the discourse, so you may wonder, well, what's left to talk about if he's answered these questions. Well, there happens to be one more important event that will take place at the end of the age as a part of this larger set of events, and it's one that Jesus had to explain to these men because it is critically important. But here's the thing, it's an event that the disciples never thought to ask about. In fact, none of them had ever heard of it before. It's a moment that you can find pictured in the Old Testament in various places but it's never discussed plainly in the Old Testament. Paul tells us this event is actually a mystery that was revealed only in the New Testament. And so at the time when Jesus spoke these words on the Mount of Olives, his disciples had no idea that there was this other event included in God's plan, and yet, as it turns out, it is the single most important event in prophecy for the church, for the believer. If you only know one thing about the future, this is the one thing you need to know. And so, as we move forward in this discourse, Jesus now moves away from the original questions he was asked to a topic that no one thought to ask him about. But he makes the point, the main point, of the whole discourse. That's what we pick up next week. And I've said several times as we've gone through this study already that we will not be present on the earth at the time when the events uh, of the tribulation begin. We won't be there to see the events that lead up to Jesus' second coming. And I've said that now repeatedly and if you've wondered how I know that, well, Jesus is about to explain that event to us in what follows this great mystery that has been planned for the church. And I hope you'll be a part of that with us because as I said, if there's anything you need to know about this chapter, it's what comes next. And that takes us into chapter 25 a good distance and an opportunity to see it in connection with everything else we've studied. It's probably one of the most important areas in all the Gospel of Matthew for um, dealing with the confusion and to some extent the division that we know within the body when it comes to prophecy about the end times. If we get this next section right, we solve a lot of that controversy and division. So I hope you'll be with me For that, Let's pray as we finish up today. Dear Father, Father, we thank you for prophecy. We thank you for the way it builds our confidence in your word as we see it come to pass just as was written before. We know that that means we can trust all that's written in your word. We thank you, Father, for the confidence it gives us to face difficult times. For when you tell us there will be tribulation or when you tell us there will be uh, difficult times, we know then that what comes to us in our day and in our life is not random. It's not a sign that things are out of control. It's exactly what you said to expect. And I thank you for prophecy, Father, so that we would have a tool that we can use in helping others know the truth. For if knowing about the future brings an interest in the Bible, then let us put that to work. If hearing about strange and marvelous events yet to come gain someone's interest for a conversation about Jesus, well then let us put that to work. Whatever way, Father, we can put your word to work, to the glory of your name, let us do that, and help us, Father, be better students so that we can serve you in that mission. I thank you, Father, for our study, for our time together, for the weeks ahead of this study, all that you've done in this church and will do, we give you glory for it, and ask for a continuing and endless opportunity to serve this way until you return.